Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, February 8th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. Today's five-day forecast for the Siouxland area starts with um, Thursday being a breezy day with maybe a little rain in the morning, uh, a high of 48 and a low of 29. Friday will be breezy in the afternoon with a high of 44 and a low of 23. Saturday will be um, times of low clouds with a high of 40 and a low of 23. Sunday will be sunshine with patchy clouds, a high of 41 and a low of 21. And Monday will be turning cloudy and breezy with a high of 46 and a low of 24. Today's mini editorial is written by Greg Nooney of Sioux City and Greg writes, all four of Iowa representatives in Congress, Feenstra, Miller Meeks, Nunn and Henson, voted to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over policy disagreements, not high crimes. Dangerous precedent being set by the Republican Party. Again, this was written by Greg Nooney of Sioux City. Our first article uh, is written by Nick Hytrek of the Sioux City Journal, and the headline is Decatur Bridge Future Up in the Air. Driving east on Nebraska Highway 51 through Decatur, the oncoming bridge rises up to greet you like a friend you have not seen in years. The steel girders and trusses are a blast from the past, a type of architecture rarely seen in newer bridges. That uniqueness is one reason the Decatur Bridge is qualified to be named to the National Register of Historic Places. It has spanned the Missouri River linking Nebraska and Iowa for 73 years. How much longer it may do so is something transportation officials in both states are studying. They are seeking the public's opinions, opening an online survey, and also making printed surveys available in Decatur and nearby Ottawa. The public comments due by March 15th will help officials decide whether to keep the bridge or replace it. Decatur Village Board Chairman Mark Seek said he doesn't have a sense for what people's opinions are, but he is certain they all want a river crossing to remain, whether it is a new or an old bridge. The bridge is important to the town, Seek said. Traffic coming through town, it's vital to our businesses. The same is true on the Iowa side of the river, where Onawa, seven miles from Decatur, sees many Nebraskans crossing the bridge to see doctors and go shopping. Parked across the street from the grocery store, Ottawa Mayor Lonnie Campbell said, If I were to drive over there, I'd probably see several Nebraska cars. Both towns' businesses rely on customers from the other side of the river and from the roughly 2,000 vehicles that pass over the bridge daily. You will see many people crossing the bridge in either direction to go to work in the morning and heading over it again on the way home in the evening. Many remember 2011 when Missouri river flooding caused the bridge to be closed for five months, turning a 10-minute drive between Decatur and Ottawa into a 75-mile detour through Sioux City. That was inconvenient. None of us want to go back to that, Campbell said. The flood-related closure was a bit of irony considering the bridge initially did not even go over the water. As the bridge was being built in 19... 51, the Missouri changed its course, leaving the bridge over dry land and earning it the name the Dry Land Bridge. The ongoing Korean War 
delayed federal appropriations for river rechanneling, which was finally completed in 1955, allowing the bridge to open to traffic that December. For years, the bridge was owned by the Burt County Bridge Commission, which operated as a toll bridge, using the fees collected for maintenance. The bonds used to build the bridge were paid off in 2004, and the Bridge Commission stopped charging tolls on December 1, 2013, shortly before it transferred ownership to Nebraska and Iowa, which split maintenance costs based on the percentage of the bridge located in each state. 73.6% in Iowa and 26.4% in Nebraska. The Nebraska Department of Transportation, which is taking the lead in the project but splitting the costs of the study 50-50 with Iowa, has listed four possible options on its website. Do nothing and continue with regular maintenance until the bridge eventually needs to be closed. Rehabilitate it or replace it with a new bridge in the same location or a different one nearby. I have not heard a lot from the public one way or another, said Dakin Schultz, a traffic planner at the Iowa Department of Transportation's District 3 office in Sioux City, which is working with the Nebraska DOT on the bridge study. It's very important we're taking the input of the users. It helps to share ultimately, I'm sorry, shape ultimately what the project wants to be and what it looks like. There's no doubt those who live near and depend on the bridge will have plenty to say. Even if refurbished, the bridge would remain narrow. It's 22.5 foot roadway far from the modern standard of 36 feet makes meeting an oncoming semi feel like a close encounter. The steel grid bridge deck allows you to see through the roadway to the river below as you're crossing and can be a bit unnerving. The bridge is inspected every two years and is safe, but Schultz pointed out it's 70 years old. The bridge underwent structural repairs and repainting in 2018 and requires ongoing maintenance to the bridge deck panels. Another round of repairs likely just delays in the inevitable. Even if they do a bunch of work on it, I think its days are numbered as being a viable bridge, Seek said. Campbell said he prefers a new bridge near the current one, but he's fine with whatever solution is reached as long as it doesn't permanently close the crossing. I don't care as long as we can get traffic across. In the meantime, traffic will continue to cross just as it has for seven decades. How much longer is partly up to local residents? Judge said sense and Sentencing date in Taylor voter fraud case. Kim Taylor in April will learn her sentence for committing multiple instances of voter fraud. Chief U.S. District Judge Leonard Strand on Tuesday scheduled sentencing for April 1st in U.S. District Court in Sioux City. A jury in November found Taylor, the wife of Woodbury County Board of Supervisors member Jeremy Taylor, guilty of 52 counts of voter fraud to collect votes for her husband, who ran unsuccessfully for the Republican nomination for a U.S. House seat in the 2020 primary before winning the election to the county board that fall. Kim Taylor faces up to five years in prison on each charge. Strand scheduled the sentencing hearing after receiving a final present pre-sentence investigation report. Taylor and government prosecutors will be allowed to call witnesses and submit exhibits of the at the hearing. 
During the six-day trial, prosecutors presented evidence to show how Kim Taylor, a Vietnam native who met Jeremy Taylor while he was teaching there, ran a coordinated effort to gather hundreds of votes from Sioux City's Vietnamese community on her husband's behalf. Evidence showed Kim Taylor approached many numerous Vietnamese voters who had limited English comprehension and filled out and signed the election forms and ballots on behalf of them and their English-speaking children. In some cases, she advised them they could fill out and sign voter registration forms, absentee ballot request forms, and the ballots themselves for their children without their consent. Jeremy Taylor has not been charged, but was named as an unindicted co-conspirator. The case remains under investigation, and prosecutors have not commented on any possible future indictments. He remains on the county board, though other members have called for him to resign. His seat is up for election this fall, and he has yet to declare whether he will seek re-election. Our next story is ex-Iowa Ag Secretary Northey dies. Bill Northey, a Spirit Lake farmer who was Iowa's top agriculture official for more than a decade and a leader at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, died recently at the age of 64. His death was publicly announced Monday by the Agribusiness Association of Iowa, of which he was chief executive. Bill was a tireless advocate for agriculture and a beloved leader, the association said. An association spokesperson said Northey died suddenly but did not know the cause of death. Funeral arrangements are pending. Northey, a longtime Dickinson County farmer, was Iowa's Agriculture Secretary from 2007 to 2018, after which he was Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation at the USDA until 2021. He was an Iowa State University graduate who was raised on a farm in Dickinson County, according to the association. He was president of the National Corn Growers Association in the mid-1990s and a decade later was first elected Agriculture Secretary for Iowa. Bill was a great leader whose work ethic and passion for Iowa agriculture was unmatched, Governor Kim Reynolds said in a statement. Iowans and farmers around the country were fortunate to have such a rock-solid advocate and friend. Reynolds ordered the flags at half-staff until after Northeast funeral. Numerous public officials and agriculture groups heaped praise on Northey on Monday. U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack said, Bill's colleagues, the Iowa agriculture community, and so many who knew him will feel the absence of such a passionate, knowledgeable, and devoted leader for a long time to come. Bill Nag, the current state agriculture secretary. As secretary, he had a tremendously positive impact on our state and the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship, but his influence went well beyond our borders, whether it was on issues like soil conservation, water quality, renewable energy, foreign animal disease preparedness, or trade. Bill was respected nationally and internationally. Bill was smart, and people looked toward his leadership on every issue he focused on. U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley said, Today, the Iowa farm community lost a giant. Bill Northey was a dear friend and a fierce advocate for the family farmer. As Iowa Secretary of Agriculture and Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation at the United States Department of Agriculture under President Trump, Bill's commitment to agriculture, biofuels, and conservation were unmatched. Jeff Kaufman, Chairman of the Republican Party of Iowa, his legacy extends far beyond the boundaries of his political office. Bill's warmth, approachability, and genuine concern for the well-being of this state and Iowans will be his legacy. The Iowa Farm Bureau Federation uh, 
statement said, The Iowa Farm Bureau is saddened to learn of the passing of Bill Northey, a tireless champion, defender, and promoter of farmers and agriculture at both the state and federal levels. His steadfast dedication and life's work to ensuring agriculture thrives will continue to impact farm families here in Iowa and across the nation for years to come. Monty Shaw, executive director of the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association, said, Bill has always been a thoughtful but forceful leader for farmers in rural America. He was an incredible friend to ethanol and biodiesel producers because he saw the big picture. This wasn't just about turning a profit. This was about preserving a way of rural life. And then the last one is from U.S. Senator Joni Ernst. Bill Northey dedicated his life to Iowa agriculture. Throughout his career as a farmer, leader in key agriculture organizations, Iowa Secretary of State, and U.S. Department of Agriculture Undersecretary, he was a steadfast advocate for the producers that feed and fuel our world. He helped establish Iowa as a national leader on key initiatives, including ethanol and nutrient reduction strategy, which always while always remaining grounded and connected to his family farm in Dickinson County. It is now time for the weekly column written by Kathy Yoder, who is a devotional writer, and she may be reached at kathyyoder4 at gmail.com. One little house in the darkness by the side of the road. As cars travel past, hurrying to get somewhere, the house stands still. If those drivers paused a moment and looked toward the house, they might see something unusual. The two people inside are reading God's word. His words fill their hearts and their minds. His words fill the air, causing a light to shine in the darkness. The darkness is not only a part of the night, it's a constant companion to the travelers. If only those travelers would pause long enough to bask in God's light, they would be changed, maybe for eternity. Then the monuments they've built in this world would then crumble because the light illuminates what they truly are, junk. Junk in the junkyard of their lives. Junk they've always cherished as treasure. Junk they've built their entire lives upon. Junk they've worshipped as a god. Their junk looks good, but even good-looking junk will one day rust and decay, eventually ending up as a, in an unrecognizable heap in the junkyard. No matter how well you dress up and adorn junk, it's still worthless when measured by eternity. Junk will not get us into heaven, neither will good deeds. When the rich young ruler approaches Jesus, he says, Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? This is Luke 18, 18. This young man, who's also a religious leader, has no idea who Jesus really is, the Son of God. He's calling Jesus good, but he has no concept of what good truly is. God alone is good, but the ruler sees himself as good, good enough to inherit eternal life. Maybe he's inherited some of his wealth. Maybe he's earned it entirely on his own. In either case, he seems like a self-made man who takes credit for all that he has. He's viewing eternity in the same way. What should I do to inherit eternal life? The emphasis is on the I. Jesus recites the commandments. The man replied, I've obeyed these commandments since I was young. He's saying that he has traveled through his life without sinning. He's claiming to be good. But Jesus, the good teacher, points out that he lacks. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, This is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. 
The emphasis here isn't on selling treasures. It's on following Jesus. How do we do that? By getting rid of everything that we cherish more than him. In the rich young ruler's life, his wealth is his treasure. His prestige, his identity, his life is defined by what he owns. But in the span of eternity, what he has is junk. What he has acquired and accumulated can so easily be taken from him. What the young man owns when he is talking to Jesus can so easily disappear. And it eventually will. No one takes earthly possessions into eternity. We only take our faith in God or our lack of faith with us. The rich young ruler sadly walks away from Jesus, choosing his wealth over the Lord. Does he ever look back? Eventually he ages and ultimately dies. Unless he repents and turns to Jesus instead of his possessions, he will not spend eternity with the Lord. Jesus isn't saying that wealth prevents us from going into heaven. No, it's anything or anyone we place before God. Jesus is inviting the young man and all of us to travel life with him. After we've removed the junk that gets in the way, Jesus says, Then come, follow me. Now is the time to walk away from the junk. Now is the time to embrace treasure that is not made by human hands. Hands that seek fame, respect, and wealth. Hands that point to self instead of God. Hands that refuse to serve God. Unless those hands surrender to the Lord of all creation, they will one day be left holding nothing. They will one day cry out, Lord, Lord, and the Lord will say to them, Depart from me, I know you not. Don't allow your life to be empty-handed. Fill your hands with praise to the one true God. Love, obey, and serve him. Otherwise, you will be like those travelers in the dark driving nowhere. They're going in one direction and then another, completely ignoring the light. Ignoring the light, they embrace the darkness. Leave the darkness right now and walk into the light. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. No one gets to the Father except through him. And that's from John 14:6. Embrace the light now. Ask him to illuminate your darkness. Be like the couple in the little house along the side of the road. As they read the Bible, God's words fill their hearts and their minds. His words fill the air, causing a light to shine in the darkness. Reject the darkness. Don't allow it to be your traveling companion any longer. Ask the Holy Spirit to live inside you. Praise your Father in heaven. Join all the children of light who will be your brothers and sisters for eternity. Do it now before it's too late. As we make that final journey to forever, wealth will not pay the way. Only Jesus can purchase the tickets. In fact, he did that on the cross. All we have to do is accept his free gift. And we'll move to some church news. Jambalaya Dinner. United Lutheran Church at 315 Hamilton Boulevard will hold a Jambalaya Dinner from 5 to 7 p.m. on Tuesday, February 13th. Cost is $15 per person, $25 per couple. Children 8 to 19 are $12.50. Children under 7 are free. Menu includes jambalaya, biscuits, cornbread, corn on the cob, fruit, dessert, and drinks. For reservations, which are appreciated but not required, call 712-560-4501. Then Ash Wednesday Services. Sioux City Catholic Cathedral Parish will hold Masses in three languages on Wednesday, February 14th to mark the beginning of Lent. All services are open to the public. All Masses are held at the Cathedral of the Epiphany at 1000 Douglas Street, unless otherwise indicated. 
7.30 a.m. there'll be English, 9 a.m. will be Spanish, 11 a.m. will be Vietnamese. Noon, English with Bishop Walker Nicholas, 5.30 will be Spanish, and 7 p.m. will be Spanish. Redeemer Lutheran Church at 3204 South Lakeport is inviting the public to their Ash Wednesday services on Wednesday, February 14th. Worship times are 11.30 a.m. and 7 p.m. with imposition of ashes. A free will soup and pie lunch will be served at 12.15 p.m. following the 11.30 a.m. service, and dinner will be served from 5 to 6.45 prior to the 7 p.m. service. Join for the Guided to the Cross series. Throughout this holy time, we are drawn to Calvary to live in forgiveness, hope, love, peace, trust, and perseverance. Each week, the services in this series reveal how Christ and His cross serve as examples of how to live for and through the crucified Lord and Savior. Ash Wednesday, Guided to Forgiveness, Colossians 1, 13-14. When we confess our sins, we find forgiveness in the cross of Christ and are empowered to forgive others. Grace United Methodist Church at 1735 Morningside Avenue will begin the season of Lent with an Ash Wednesday service at 7 p.m. on February 14th. The traditional imposition of ashes will be observed. The evening's Bible text from Mark 12, 38 through 44 concerns Jesus' teaching in the temple about what it means to act faithfully in an unjust world. Further teachings from Mark 12 through 13 will be explored each Sunday in Lent. All services at Grace are open to the general public. And then uh, a men's conference informational. National Catholic speaker, youth minister, parish mission leader, author, and Des Moines Catholic radio host John Leonetti will be the keynote speaker for the April 6th Men's Conference in Lamars. The Men of the Cross Conference is co-sponsored by the Catholic Diocese of Sioux City and the Lamars All Saints Catholic Parish Men's Ministry Group. Leonetti shared that he will be talking to the conference participants about human beings created in God's image and likeness, as described in the book of Genesis. He pointed out that humans are the highest form of God's creation. Men of the Cross will include three keynote presentations from Leonetti, two 30-minute breakout sessions, lunch and mass at 12, 2 p.m. with Bishop Nicholas. The Plymouth County Pork Producers will be providing a hearty pork chop lunch for the men, which has become an annual favorite for the participants. Bauer explained that breakout speakers will include Father Zach Jones, Father Michael Erpelding, and Daniel Swalf, parishioner and father of young children. To register for the conference, participants can go to the website scdiocese.org slash men's conference. Cost is $40 per person if registered by March 22nd. After March 22nd, the fee increases to $50 per person. Fathers and sons registering together will receive a $5 discount off of each registration. The conference will be held at All Saints Catholic Parish St. Joseph Church, 605 Plymouth Street, Northeast in Lamars. And our next uh, article, Local Elections Could Become Partisan Under the Bill. Candidates for city and school board elections would appear on the ballot with party labels under a bill Iowa Republican lawmakers advanced out of subcommittee on Tuesday. Supporters said the change would reflect the reality of the traditionally nonpartisan races, which have seen increased attention and money from local political parties and statewide partisan organizations in recent years. 
Representative Brooke Bolden, Republican from Indianola, who led the subcommittee meeting, said, Specifically, in the last election, I think we saw a lot of party-affiliated people get involved in a space that we've not seen them get involved in. And so, when you begin going down this pathway, we need to have a conversation. Is this the direction we are going? Bolden and Representative Don Gelbeck, Republican from Urbandale, voted to advance the bill, House Study Bill 633, out of the subcommittee. Democratic Representative Heather Matson, Democrat from Ankeny, voted against it. The bill, which was proposed by House Education Committee's Chair Skylar Wheeler of Hull, is now eligible for consideration in the full committee. Candidates for school and city elections currently run without any party label on the ballot. Still, local elections, especially for school boards, have become increasingly partisan in recent years, as disagreements over school curriculum, LGBTQ issues, and COVID-19 measures have brought increased attention onto the local boards. Groups like One Iowa, Moms for Liberty, and the Family Leader got involved in school board races last year. Liberal candidates largely won over conservatives but in that election's contested races. Under the bill, candidates for city and school board offices would be dominated via a primary election, and all other methods of nominating candidates for those offices would be removed. The primary election would be held on the first Tuesday in October before the November election, when city and school offices are up for election. Candidates would need to gather between 10 and 100 signatures from voters, depending on the office, to appear on the primary ballot. The cost of conducting the primary election would be paid by the city or the school district. Opponents of the bill said it would inject partisanship into offices that don't often deal with political issues. They also said it would be unnecessary costs for school districts and cities, which often have uncontested races for open seats. Steve Richardson, an Indianola City Council member, told lawmakers during the subcommittee meeting he did not understand what problem the bill was intended to address. He said, I understand in some of the previous elections recently that there's been some partisan activity from different groups and things like that, but that's happened, frankly, for a long time, and it's nothing new to the process. Lobbyists representing city and school board groups said smaller districts often have difficulty recruiting candidates to run for office. Requiring cities and school districts to conduct and pay for a separate primary election would add to those difficulties, they said. Margaret Buckton, a lobbyist for the Urban Education Network and Rural School Advocates of Iowa, said, I would prefer that we not have to spend money on an election that could be spent on a teacher instead or a program that is really important for students. Matson, who voted against the bill, said the issues that local officials deal with are not partisan. At forums for school board candidates in her community, she said, candidates talked about the specific issues facing students and teachers rather than partisan issues. Whether it is curriculum and standards or making sure that buildings have great security, those are the issues that are dealt with at the school board level, she said. I don't think it helps anybody, or any Iowan for that matter, to unnecessarily enforce partisanship. Some supporters of the bill said it would give voters more information about candidates in local races and allow them to make more informed decisions. They also said they believed it would increase turnout as voters would feel more confident making decisions on who to support. Research has shown that a lack of party affiliation on the ballot leads to lower turnout in local elections and incumbents have a larger advantage in nonpartisan elections.
Voters are also more likely to skip nonpartisan races on ballots that have a mixture of partisan and nonpartisan races. Andy Conlon, a lobbyist for the conservative think tank, tank Opportunity Solutions Project, said it can be often be hard to find out where school board candidates stand on issues without seeking out and speaking to them one-on-one. -on -one. I don't have the time to sit down with every school board candidate that's going to be in charge of our district, he said. This is a marker. This is a signal to low-information voters. Hey, generally speaking, this is what they generally believe in. Sioux City gets over 1,000 snow-related complaints. Sioux City's inspection services received more than 1,100 snow-related sidewalk complaints after last month's winter storm, according to City Councilman Alex Waters. Waters released the data during the council comments portion of Monday's council meeting after thanking city staff for their hard work in battling through a lot of snowstorms. A snowstorm dumped more than a foot of the white stuff on the city the week of January 8th. Waters said, one of the things I hear in our community or people are frustrated with is that we are not enforcing the ordinances that we have. We have these ordinances in place that say, move your vehicle, and then we see vehicles sitting somewhere for a long time. Or they make complaints about different sidewalks and don't see anything being done. When Mayor Bob Scott declares a snow emergency, parking or leaving a vehicle unattended on emergency snow routes designated by a blue and white sign with a snowflake is prohibited. The declaration encourages residents to remove vehicles from all other streets to help plows clear the streets. It also requires motorists to park on the odd side of, of non-emergency routes on odd days of the month and on the even side on the, of the street on even days. City Code states that property owners are to have snow and ice removed from public sidewalks abutting their properties 12 hours after snow and ice has stopped falling or blowing. According to the data provided to Waters by the Sioux City Code Enforcement Manager Daryl Bullock, there were 1,122 inspections made for snow complaints of sidewalks. Waters said a member of his team actually went out and investigated 432 snowbound vehicle complaints and the police department did an extra 110. Out of those, 54 actually escalated to the point that we had to call the tow truck to tow them. The others were taken care of. If property owners don't shovel the snow on their sidewalks, the city's contractors clear them. The cost is then assessed to those property owners who failed to comply. Waters said a total of nearly 22000 dollars worth of work was done. I would just really encourage our citizens to take that seriously. We need to be able to move the snow. We need to make sure there's a safe passage so that people are not going out on the streets. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, February 8th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We'll now go to today's obituaries. Robert B. Bob Sable 92 of Sioux City, passed away on Saturday, February 3rd at his residence. Gravesite services with military honors will be held at 11 a.m. on Thursday, February 8th at Graceland Park Cemetery in Sioux City. Friends and family are encouraged to meet at 10.30 a.m. on Thursday at the Congregation Beth Shalom, 815 38th Street, to join the funeral procession to Graceland Park. Following services at the cemetery, there will be a luncheon and time of fellowship at Congregation Beth Shalom. Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel is assisting with arrangements. Robert, the son of Bess Sable and Mark Sable, was born September 25, 1931 in Sioux City. 
Bob grew up in Sioux City and graduated from Central High School in 1949. He briefly attended the University of Iowa, but was drafted into the Army during the Korean War, where he served 11 months with the 11th Infantry. In 1954, he returned to Sioux City, where he assisted his mother with Jean's Women's Apparel, which started in 1942. During that time, he enrolled in Morningside College, where he graduated in 1957. After graduation, he worked full-time with his mother and assumed management when she retired in 1970. In 1972, Bob married Sandy Haugen, also of Sioux City, and they remained happily married until his death. Bob owned and operated Jeans until its closure in 2003. In 1989, Jeans relocated to its final location in downtown Sioux City on 4th and Pier Street. In 1990, Jeans was nationally recognized and won first place as new store of the year for small soft line stores. Throughout the years, Bob enjoyed golfing, bowling, billiards, and card games. Marilyn L. Scala, 92, of Sioux City, passed away Friday, February 2nd, surrounded by family. A memorial service will be held at 11 a.m. on Thursday, February 8th at Christy Smith Funeral Homes, Morningside Chapel. Burial will be at Memorial Park Cemetery. Marilyn was born on September 7th in Sioux City to Arthur and Grace Carpenter. She graduated from East High School in 1949 and worked for Northern Bell Telephone Company until she retired in 1984. She enjoyed animals in all forms but had a love especially for cats. You'd often catch her feeding the neighborhood cats as she could never let a cat near her go hungry. You could find Marilyn in her home with a cat on her lap, bird watching, crocheting, coloring, or outside gardening. Her biggest form of enjoyment was being with and taking care of her family. Marilyn's witty charm and jokes knew how to put a smile on everyone's face as she could light up any room. Her favorite color was pink and could usually be seen with some form of pink on. Marjorie Marge Louise Park, 99, Ottawa, passed away Sunday, February 4th. Funeral Mass will be at 10.30 a.m. February 10th at St. John Catholic Church in Ottawa. Burial will be in the Ottawa Cemetery. Visitation will be one hour prior to the service at the church. Arrangements under the guidance of Gosler Funeral Home and Monuments. Carrie Stam, 49, of Mobile, died Monday, February 5th, at her home. Celebration of Life will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 8th, at Waterbury Funeral Service, 4125 Arlene's Avenue in Sioux City. Burial will be in the Arlington Township Cemetery in Mobile. Ronald W. Nutt, 82, of Sioux City, passed away Sunday, February 4th, at his home. Memorial services are pending at this time. Arrangements are being handled by Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Susan Metz Chilcott died on Christmas morning, 2023, in Falls Church, Virginia, at the age of 80, ending a life characterized by professional achievement, volunteer service, and devoted relationships with family members and friends. Susan was born, Susan Ann Metz, April 13, 1943, in Sioux City, to parents Norma Frances Anderson and Lucien D. Metz, who separated during her childhood. She remained with her mother, who died in 1961, when Susan was a senior in high school. Susan lived in Alexandria, Virginia, where she and her husband Ron moved in 2000 when she became Vice President for Communications at the American Association of State Colleges and Universities, AASCU, from which she retired in 2018. 
Susan earned a B.A. from Midland Lutheran College, now Midland University, in Fremont, Nebraska, followed by an M.A. in communications from Creighton University in Omaha. Susan and Ron met while she lived in Fremont. Susan pursued her commitment to equal access to higher education through several positions, most notably at the University of Northern Iowa for 22 years, where she was Director of Public Relations for 13 years, before moving to the national platform of AASCU. The advancement of women also was a long-term focus Susan pursued through mentoring others and leadership posts in such organizations as Women in Communications, where she served as a national board member for six years, including two as president of the then 12,000-member organization. Susan's achievements were lauded by numerous groups, including 19 consecutive years of recognition for excellence by the Council of Advancement and Support of Education, which also honored her with its Distinguished Service Award. Two WICI Distinguished Service Awards, the Governor's Volunteer of Iowa Award, two Iowa Main Street Volunteer of the Year Awards, and appointment to the prestigious Higher Education Roundtable. Over the years, Susan and Ron shared their homes with a succession of beloved cats. She enjoyed traveling for both work and pleasure and adored all things Christmas. Donations in Susan's honor may be made to Best Friends Animal Society, Miss Foundation for Women, or Midland University. Selena K. Speth, 44, of Wayne, Nebraska, passed away Friday, January 26. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 9th, with a prayer service at 7 p.m. at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Cecil Horn, 84, of Sioux City, passed away on Monday, January 29th, at home following a courageous battle with cancer. A graveside and celebration of life will be held at a later date. Arrangements are under the direction of Nelson Berger Northside Chapel. Cecil was born on April 15, 1939 in Lawton, Iowa, the son of Wesley and Maureen Horn. He grew up on a farm in Lawton and graduated from Lawton Bronson High School. Following his graduation, he entered into the United States Navy. He served on aircraft carriers working in the boiler room and served two tours to Okinawa, Japan. After two years of military service, Cecil married Betty Habel on September 9, 1960 in Sioux City, and the couple moved to Westfield, Iowa, where he started farming. The family lived across the Siouxland area while Cecil farmed, including years in Lawton, Akron on a farm still owned within the family, and finally Sioux City from 1990 until present day. While continuing to farm, Cecil worked various side jobs in Sioux City, including the Sioux City Stockyards, Sioux Tools, and Terra Chemicals, where he drove the three-wheeler floater. Later, he hit the road, traveling for Phillips Kiln Service before opening New Ideas Fabrication with his three sons in 1996, where he continued until his retirement. The shop remains in Dakota City as Cecil spent years tinkering, working on tractors, and restoring his 1980 CJ7 with his son Carrie. Cecil was a member of St. John's Lutheran Church in Akron for several years and later a member of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Sioux City. He played baseball in Sioux City, was a member of Plymouth County 4-H and Pheasants Forever, and took many antique tractor rides across Iowa with a tractor club. His favorite tractor from within his collection of over 20 was a blue Ford 9600 that he restored. Cecil will be remembered by his family for being a wonderful husband, father, and grandfather. 
Joan V. Denny, 90, of Sioux City, passed away February 6th. A memorial service will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, February 10th, with a visitation one hour prior at Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. And that concludes the obituaries. We'll now move to the sports section, and we'll um, have an article about the Journal Athlete of the Week, who this time is Westwood's Addie Johnson. Addie Johnson comes across as a typical teenager, thoughtful, respectful, a high school senior who enjoys spending time with her friends through athletics or otherwise. But the Westwood High School senior has had to do atypical things to keep her hoop dreams alive. While Johnson and the Class 2A third-ranked Rebels are undefeated for the season and are coming off a sweep of the Western Valley Conference regular season champion and conference tournament title, two ACL tears cast out over whether or not she'll get, a, get to share a season like this with her teammates. Johnson said, there's people who don't come out the other side of injuries like I had. Actually, physically recovering was pretty easy compared to the mental side. It's a long process, but I have a great team and a lot of great people in my life that helped me through it. Westwood girls basketball coach Vince Johnson, who is Addie's father, witnessed the process firsthand. Vince said, I'm very proud of her. Anybody who, who's had an ACL injury knows it's not the physical side that's the hardest part for the athletes, it's the mental side. It's the things they can't get over, like being with their teammates in the same way that you used to. And the other part is being able to trust yourself and your body to do the things it did before the injury. Addie's overcome a lot of these past two years. Tearing it not once, but twice was huge hurdle she had to overcome. And the thing I'm really proud of her as a coach and her dad is the way her attitude has always been the same. She's always thinking about helping the team first. It was Westwood's third straight regular season crown and the first ever tournament win. I'm very happy with the way our team played in the Western Valley Conference Tournament, Vince Johnson said. We played very well defensively as a team. Back on the court and healthy, Johnson and the Rebels are looking for more with the postseason right around the corner. On her redemption tour, Johnson is leading Westwood in scoring over 17 points a game. Johnson and junior Ashlyn Davis are each averaging over eight and a half rebounds per game to lead the Rebels on the boards. And Johnson also averages a two, two and a half steals plus one and a half blocks a contest. A multi-sport athlete at Westwood, Johnson has been an all-conference volleyball player, but she's at home on the basketball hardwood where she's been an all-stater as a freshman and is a two-time all-conference basketball player. But the injuries cast doubt on how far her hoops career would go while in high school and beyond. She said, I was just watching the dream happen in front of me without me, but it's a great but it's great that I get to live it this year. It's amazing. She verbally committed to Division II Wayne State early in her prep days before the ACL tears. I committed after my freshman year, the six-foot senior said. My sophomore year was when I tore my ACL, but I'm very thankful for Wayne State for sticking by me. But there were some doubts, like, will they still want me since I've been injured twice? But here I am now, officially signed and 100% Wayne State. 
But on Wayne State's side, there was never a hesitation to honor the scholarship offer. We got to know Addie at camp several years ago, and I think she fell in love with our school, and our program fell in love with her right away, said Wayne State head women's basketball coach Brent Pilari. She has an amazing attitude about her and is a really gifted basketball player. She was the type of player we wanted to recruit, and she committed pretty early. She ended up with a torn ACLU, ACL, but was but we told her we'd stick by her and grant the scholarship. Then she tore it again, and we said the same thing, that we'd stick by her because we believed in her. Despite the missed time, she's done enough on the court to amass over 1,000 career points and has gone over 600 career rebounds as well as accumulated over 120 assists, steals, and blocks each. Her scoring average peaked as a sophomore when she averaged 18.4 points a game. But Johnson's scoring has dipped almost by design as she prides herself as playing a gritty, malleable, unselfish brand of basketball. As a senior leader, she sets the tone for the Rebels on the court. And Westwood would like that for that tone to include some unselfishness on offense as Johnson is one of five Rebels that are averaging over two assists a game for the campaign. Polari said, she's a universal basketball player. You can play her almost anywhere. And being a coach's kid, she knows the game very well, too. We like hard workers that can grind. We also like length. But mostly, we just want people at Wayne State that have a passion to compete. And I think Addie fits all of that. As a team, Westwood is averaging over 17 assists a game, second most in Class 2A. But the Rebels still pride themselves on their defense. Westwood is currently allowing a meager 30.3 points against per game, second fewest in the class, and the team's plus 32.3 point differential is the best in 2A. She's gone from averaging 1.2 assists per game as a freshman to dishing out nearly one a quarter as a senior. Many of those come after grabbing a defensive rebound and bringing the ball up the court herself to set up a teammate. Though there were some dark times rehabbing the knee, being sidelined made Johnson see and think about the game in a new way. She said, I saw the game in such a different way. I looked at it as a coach, a spectator, three or four different ways, and being more involved on the coaching side helped me think and see things differently. I love that about her, said Polari. Polari. There's been studies done on how people's outlook affects them, and she could have easily had a pity party, the woe is me type stuff, or she could have used it to get better, and that's a really special thing about her. They have a special team there at Westwood, really talented. I think they're going to accomplish some special things yet this year. And the roster around her has responded with the remarkable results this season. Younger sister Brenna, a sophomore, is averaging 14.5 points per game and is shooting over 40% from the three-point range. And junior Ashlyn Davis is producing 13.4 points and a team-high 8.9 rebounds and outing. It's a we team, not a me team, said Johnson. It's super cool to have a team that doesn't have to rely on one or two people to score. We have five or six players who can lead us in scoring any given game, and anybody can get a rebound, get an assist. It can be somebody different every time, and that's hard to defend and scout. Polari said, we're excited to get her at Wayne State. We think she's a special young lady. And then a um, story from the Sioux City Musketeers. 
The Sioux City Musketeers have announced a trade with the Omaha Lancers. Sioux City has received forward Justin Stupka in exchange for a 2024 Phase 1 third round draft pick and a 2024 Phase 2 fifth round USHL draft pick. Stupka played in 38 games this season in Omaha, where he recorded 15 points on 7 goals and 8 assists. Last season, he collected 13 points in 55 games on 4 goals and 9 assists. Over parts of his three seasons in the USHL, Stupka has appeared in 96 games and has 30 points total points scored. A native of Pittsburgh, Stupka has had some big performances as a visitor on the ice at Tyson Events Center. In 14 career games versus Sioux City, Stupka has scored 4 goals and 3 assists. A Miami University commit, he has especially enjoyed playing in the Tyson Events Center where he has authored four points via two goals and two assists and a, and a plus three in seven career games in downtown Sioux City. Stupka may make his Sioux City debut against his former squad on Thursday when the Muskies head to Omaha for a 7.05 p.m. puck drop. After losing at Waterloo on Tuesday, Sioux City res resides in second place in the Western Conference with 52 points. We'll now move to an event that's going to be happening at um, Western Iowa Tech Community College. It's the second annual Power of Hair Expo in honor of Black History Month. It will be February 15th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Dunker Center at Western Iowa Tech Community College. For most of her life, Lashana Moyle's long, lustrous hair was an important part of her identity. As a biracial woman, she wanted to respect black culture, and that included her thick, curly hair. Once she entered her 40s, Moyle began to realize how expensive and time-consuming it was to maintain her mane. Plus, it would be stiflingly hot to have that much hair in the summertime. Also, let's get real. Forget about spending any relaxing time in a swimming pool because frizzy hair quickly becomes tangled hair when wet. She explained, There came a point in my life when I wanted my self-identity to evolve. Despite more than a few tears shed, I finally decided it was time to cut my hair. Moyle, coordinator of Inclusivity Excellent for Western Iowa Tech Community College is using her own personal story as a starting point for the college's second annual The Power of Hair Expo. The event, which is in honor of February being Black History Month, is being billed as a way to address what hair means inside and outside of the black community. Hair is a centerpiece of black culture, Moyle said. It's a symbol of identity, of resistance, creative expression, and freedom. While black hair has always had a unique place in the history and legacy of blackness in America, it had also come at a cost. For instance, the black hair care industry is worth more than $2.5 billion, with black women spending two to six times as much on hair care than their white counterparts. Even significant was a 2023 research study conducted by the personal care product company Dove, which discovered black women's hair is more than two times likely to be perceived as unprofessional. Indeed, approximately two-thirds of black women said they have changed their hair to go to an interview. Among them, 41% said they changed their hair from curly to straight. According to this survey, around 25% of black women believe they were denied a job because of their hair. Moyle said the Power of Hair Expo will be a safe place where such issues can be discussed. 
She explained, for far too long, we've kept these kinds of discussions under wrap. Because of that, people began to think such incidents were singular. Instead, they were always universal. Even young children can be singled out due to their hair. Moyle said, pointing towards popular kids' books like Hair Love and Bedtime Bonnet as popular reading material for black children. Last year, we placed an emphasis on talking to young girls about their hair. Kids need to feel represented. That has always been a struggle for black girls when, to come, when it comes to their hair. In a survey conducted in 2021 reported, that 100% of black elementary school girls attending majority white schools who report hair discrimination state they experience discrimination by the age of 10. While the same study reports that 90% of black girls believe their hair is beautiful, microaggression and discrimination can have a detrimental and long-lasting impact. In fact, trauma from such experiences can cause girls to miss days from school. Teenage black girls can miss up to a week worth of school due to hair dissatisfaction, Moyle said. Think it is solely a female problem? Well, guess again. Black boys can also experience hair trauma. Moyle said, during our first year, we thought the hair expo was way too woman-centric. This time around, we're opening it up to everyone. Which is why she wanted the Power of Hair Expo to be held on a college campus for a diverse student's bo student body from across the country and around the world. Unless they have access to a car, which students might feel isolated from a community? They may not have people to identify with, or they may not even know that they are that there are hairdressers who specialize in black hair around town. Despite that, some attitudes exist within and outside of the black community. Specifically, to have good hair generally meant having straight hair or hair that was closer to people of European descent. By straying away from that common aesthetic can have consequences on the lives of people, socially, economically, and politically. In 2019, Dove and the Crown Coalition created the Creating and a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair Act. Partnering with a California state senator, the Crown Act fought to ensure protection against discrimination based on race-based hairstyles by extending statutory protection to hair texture and protective styles such as braid, twists, and knots in the workplace and in public schools. People are still being sent home from work or from school activities due to their hair. Moyle said, that was wrong in the past and it is wrong now. In addition to being a forum for healthy discussion, the Power of Hair Expo is also a celebration of black hair in all shapes, lengths, and textures. For people in the black community, hair and identity are inseparable, Moyle said. It connects us to our culture, identity, and the notions of beauty. That was the case with Moyle, who admitted it took her some time to get used to her new short hairdo. My hair makes me feel good, and it is a way that I want to represent myself to the world, she said with a confident smile. This is who I am today. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, February 8th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.
In Africa, five-year-old Cheru has no choice. She and millions like her must walk miles every day for dirty water. But together, we can end their walk by providing clean water close by. Instead of spending hours walking to get water that makes them sick, girls can be in a classroom that expands their minds and moms will gain back time to care for their families. Sons and daughters can grow up strong, finally free of sicknesses caused by dirty water. At World Vision, care about clean water runs deep. Deep enough to reach one new person with clean water every 10 seconds. Because every child, every person, everywhere deserves clean water and the chance to rise to their full potential. It's true. When you just add water, you change a life. Learn more at worldvision.org.